This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university in San Francisco. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. for coming out. Have you ever had the experience of walking through a forest and feeling like the trees appreciated you being there? Or maybe they had something to communicate to you? Or perhaps you've spent time in your garden and become so entranced in the lives of a bird or an insect or a plant that you kind of lost track of time and entered into their world. Or maybe you took a walk along the coast and listened to the waves and felt the imminent power of the ocean, and you had this feeling that you were in a communicative, responsive world. Anything like that ever happen? These experiences counter our ordinarily separate sense of self and decenter the human ego. By stepping into the community of life, we can enter a connected space. We can momentarily let go of the isolation and autonomy of the ego as it is constructed in Western culture. These moments of peace and calm in nature allow us to hear what has been called the still small voice, which might be God or intuition or conscience or spirits or nature, depending on what your own cosmology is. But it's something that's important and something that allows you to connect with deeper insights and values. These can also be moments of what the sociologist of religion, Robert Orsi, has called real presence in an absolutely amazing book called History and Presence that came out last year, so check it out. Um, And he calls this idea of real presence the felt and truly existing experience of greater than human power and otherness breaking into daily life. He doesn't talk about ecology in the book, but I'm really borrowing his idea of of real presence here um, to represent the spirituality of this talk. And in his book, Orsi notes that these experiences of real presence as they're recorded in in texts and and memoirs and history, they are often um, experienced by women, immigrants, non-dominant groups. So it's interesting to think about why those experiences of real presence um, are reported more by the non-dominant groups. These moments of profound connection and presence with a larger natural world are important connections and uh, correctives to the alienation, dissociation, anxiety, and depression that the constant stream of bad news about environmental degradation and climate change can provoke in those who are paying attention. So increasingly, these experiences of deep connection with the natural world are studied under the umbrella of spiritual ecology, a term that has arisen over the past couple of decades to encompass the internal, subjective, emotional, mystical, or religious connections between humans and the rest of planetary life. According to Les Sponsel, an ecological anthropologist at the University of Hawaii who has written a book titled Spiritual Ecology, A Quiet Revolution. He says spiritual ecology is the diverse, complex, and dynamic arena of intellectual and practical activities at the interface of religions and spiritualities on the one hand, and on the other, ecologies, environments, and environmentalism. In his book, he describes some of the key progenitors, some of the founders of this field, and suggests that this increasing awareness of and attention to internal, mystical, spiritual, and religious connections with planetary life is leading to a revolution in human relationships with nature that has internal and external transformational potential. 
Similarly, uh, the Sufi teacher, Llewellyn Vuan Lee, who lives just north of here in Marin, views spiritual ecology as the, quote, exploration of the spiritual dimension of our present ecological crisis. He writes, in particular, it's the relationship between our outer physical ecological situation and our awareness of the sacred and creation and our inner relationship to the symbolic world of the soul and how this affects our own soul and the soul of the world, the anima mundi. And so that's also from his book titled Spiritual Ecology. Similarly, the founder of the International Society for the Study of Religion, Nature, and Culture, Ron Taylor, who's based at the University of Florida, observes a new global ecological spirituality arising, which he calls dark green religion. He defines dark green religion um, as a, a belief system in which nature is sacred, has intrinsic value, and therefore is treated with reverent care. And he even observes um, some of what we might think of as secular practices like surfing or rock climbing as possibly examples of this dark green religion. In the Catholic context, Pope Francis's Laudato Si on care for our common home, which came out in 2015, brought widespread attention and I would say global attention to the interconnections of faith, spirituality, environmental degradation, politics, and justice. And particularly, he emphasized the need for economic justice to address environmental degradation. That papal encyclical brought global attention to the idea of integral ecology, the idea that ecology, climate change, economic justice, racial justice cannot be separated from one another. So these, these different articulations of spiritual ecology are all particular responses arising in our present political historical moment in response to new conditions on Earth, conditions that haven't been seen for millions of years, that have never existed while humanity has been on Earth. We can see this emergence of new ways of talking about our spiritual connection in relation to Earth, but these orientations are at least as old as humanity, if not older, which I'll talk about in a moment. And we can see this as an adaptive response to the emergence of the new political, ecological, and economic conditions on Earth. As Paul Hawken has written in Blessed Unrest about the global emergence of diverse groups working on social and ecological justice, what he calls the largest social movement the world has ever seen, I think this, the rise of spiritual ecology may be the immune system of Earth rising to counter the current threats to the biosphere. In this talk, I describe some of the origins of spiritual ecology, and I discuss how it speaks to our current moment. And I offer some reflections on ways that spiritual ecology can help cultivate resilience in the face of ecological unraveling. The field of spiritual ecology builds on the work of the late Thomas Berry, who discussed the need for an ecological spirituality in his work. Thomas Berry was a cultural historian and geologian, a self-described theologian of the earth, who chaired the Department of History of Religions um, at Fordham University for many years. He called on the religious traditions to bring their attention to the state of the earth. He identified the environmental ills of late modernity as stemming from the disconnection between religions that place the locus of value in the transcendent realm on the one hand and the specific material needs of the earth and its beings on the other. Barry wrote, the great spiritual mission of the present is to renew all the traditional religious spiritual traditions in the context of the integral functioning of the biosystems of the planet. And he said, what is needed to achieve this goal is an ecologically sensitive spirituality with an integral ecologist as a spiritual guide. So the challenge is to become integral ecologists and spiritual guides. Barry called for a conscious transition out of the Cenozoic 
geological era in which we are presently into an ecozoic era. A term that he coined with my colleague here at CIS, Brian Thomas Swim in the late 1980s. The ecozoic meaning eco earth, I'm sorry, eco household and, and zoic um, living. So the, the era of appreciating the living earth, the living household um, would recognize that we inhabit earth as a household of living beings and would, according to Barry, require changing every segment of humanity. The work of Thomas Berry, who passed away in 2009, has been carried on by two of his students, professors Mary Evelyn Tucker and John Grimm at Yale, who founded the Forum on Religion and Ecology. The Forum on Religion and Ecology unites scholars uh, all over the world who are studying this intersection of religion and ecology and has a really tremendous website. So if you have an interest in these topics, I encourage you to check it out. There are statements from religious traditions around the world on their views on nature, ecology, and the environment. There are news articles about different religious traditions and um, different uh, initiatives they have to protect the environment. Um, and they're just a tremendous amount of resources to read and learn there. Um, and then Mary Evelyn Tucker and Brian Thomas Swim and John Grimm also produced the the film and the book, The Journey of the Universe, which describes a story of the universe as an unfolding journey um, with the idea that humans can find their place, find our place in this unfolding story. A central commitment of this ecological spirituality of Thomas Berry is that, quote, the universe is a communion of subjects rather than a collection of objects. Existence itself is derived from and sustained by this intimacy of each being with every other being of the universe, end quote. This view emphasizes the relationality of all subjects with each other and suggests that any being is lessened by the loss of its relationship with any other. While the urban industrial uh, systems of late modern humanity may lead us to believe that we have severed our connections to the natural world. We are embedded in the natural world, which affects human health and well-being at every turn. As humans, we find ourselves at a juncture on the precipice of a new human-induced age, unlike anything humanity has ever lived through before. Humanity has become a planetary force, reshaping ecosystems and the atmosphere for centuries to come. Since at least the introduction of James Watt's steam engine in 1784, humans have been changing the Earth's climate. 2019 was the second hottest year on record in a string of record hottest years. Scientists have known for a century, a century, that carbon emissions from burning fossil fuels could warm the planet. In 1859, which is the same year that Darwin's On the Origin of Species was published, John Tyndall, an Irish physicist, discovered that carbon dioxide absorbs heat and that varying the amount of carbon in the atmosphere could cause changes in the climate. By the end of the 19th century, the Swedish chemist Svante Arrhenius, who would later be named a Nobel laureate, deduced that the combustion of coal and petroleum could therefore raise global temperature. Arrhenius calculated that this warming would be noticeable a few centuries hence. So this is the end of the 19th century. Or sooner, if the rate of fossil fuel consumption increased. Well, you know what happened. The rate of fossil fuel consumption increased dramatically. Within four decades, a British steam engineer named Guy Stewart Callender noticed that his weather stations were recording the hottest year on record every year. He observed, as he wrote in a 1939 paper, that humankind has become able to speed up the processes of nature. So that was 1939. Just over a decade after that, Rachel Carson, 
the famed author of Silent Spring, who warned of the dangers of toxic pesticides, wrote in Vogue magazine, of all places, quote, it is now established beyond question that a definite change in the Arctic climate set in about 1900, that it became astonishingly marked in 1930, and that it is now spreading to the subarctic and temperate regions. The frigid, frigid top of the world is very clearly warming up, end quote. She wrote that in 1959. So again, you know what happened. By the year 2000, it was clear that humanity's imprint was tipping the planet into a new geological age. The atmospheric chemist Paul Crutzen and biologist Eugene Stormer proposed this idea of an Anthropocene. They wrote, human modification of the global environment has become significant enough to warrant termination of the current Holocene geological epoch and the formal recognition of a new Anthropocene epoch, end quote. And this idea of the Anthropocene has been taken up. Uh, it's been taken like wildfire in academia. It's, it's really caught on. It's resonated with people. But there's a lot of discussion and contestation about whether the term is the correct term. Who are these anthros? Who are we referring to? Who is this time being named after? The Anthropocene Working Group of the International Stratigraphy Committee, the group that identifies geological ages, took up the question and in May 2019 voted in favor of identifying the Anthropocene as a formal stratigraphic unit based on stratigraphic signals of the 20th century. Some of these signals include erosion, disruption of nutrient cycles of carbon, nitrogen, and phosphorus, global warming, sea, sea level rise, ocean acidification, oceanic dead zones, rapid changes in the biosphere, including habitat loss, predation, explosion of de domestic animal populations, species invasions, and the proliferation of new materials like um, concrete, fly ash, and plastics. And so these have been laid down to such a degree that they're noting a new stratigraphic layer in, of, on the earth in geology. The fabric of life is unraveling. In the US, scientists reported that about one third of the birds present in 1970 have disappeared. In Germany, the insect population has fallen by more than 75% over the last 27 years. Simultaneously, the human population has reached 7.7 billion. Humans and domestic animals together, which encompass just a handful of species, represent more than 95% of mammalian biomass on Earth, with wild mammals representing just over 4% of mammalian biomass. However, to put this in context, remember that plants and bacteria are the primary producers of biomass from solar energy. And these life forms are still the most prevalent. They account for over 95% of living biomass. So we have all this ecological disruption. It feels existentially threatening. Eco-psychologists are coining new terms to identify these feelings, like psychoteric distress and environmental melancholia. We hear about the rise of eco-anxiety and climate grief. Young adults are choosing to forego having children because their concerns of what kind of world their children will live in. Ecological trade-offs have been described as borrowing from the future. But in these decisions, we can see that present choices about fossil fuel use directly affect the existence of future children and grandchildren. And of course, the harsh effects are not only in the future, they're right now. Fires eight times the size of the California fires of 2018 are ravaging Australia, incinerating millions of animals and condemning millions more to death from starvation and dehydration millions of lives being lost. And even for those who try to tune out the news media, which is a, a reasonable thing to do, 
the loss of vibrancy and richness in our ecological surroundings may be somatically felt or observed. We might just notice fewer migrating birds returning in the spring or tide pools devoid of life, seasons that don't feel like they did during childhood. A few years ago, I took my, oh my gosh, I'm gonna get choked up. <laughs> Um, and I want to say this is a normal response. This is one of the most important things I want to do tonight is just normalize. Like, it's really heavy. And I'm going to suggest some ways to deal, but like also to say it's totally normal to feel this stuff. So now that I've confessed that, um, I took my young daughter to visit the tide pools in Maine that I used to go to as a kid. And I loved exploring and seeing the sea urchins and the starfish and the different plants. And so I was so excited and I was explaining there was gonna be all these colors and textures and animals and fish and plants. And there was nothing there. It was so eerie. And she was like, what's, you know, what's the big deal? Like, I just see kind of a rock with some water in it. And that's, I mean, I can splash in it cause I'm a little kid, but it's not that exciting. Um, and at the time, the family members I was with, they said, well, you know, maybe it's the seasons, maybe it's the tide, maybe it's the um, migrations or something. But as I've continued to study these issues since then, it's just like we're losing so many individuals. So they just, they just weren't there. And of course, we're going to feel it, right? Of course. So... Um, the Australian uh, environmental philosopher Glenn Albrecht has a term for this feeling of uncanny discomfort. He calls it solastalgia. He defines solastalgia as the sense of loss experienced when one's surroundings change irrevocably, a feeling of distress over missing home, even when one is already at home. These new terms expressing new forms of psychological pain suggest that environmental devastation is a wound to the human spirit. Beyond affecting our individual or even our collect collective psyche, ecological devastation under, um, affects how we understand ourselves and how we understand our relation to the planet as a whole. The famed biologist E.O. Wilson, who launched, launched his career studying the endlessly social ant colonies and continued to study social interactions of organisms, including, including humans throughout his career, calls this time of catastrophic devastation of diverse forms of life, the Aramazoic, the age of loneliness. And I think that's what we can feel when we notice that these animals that were there when we were children are not anymore. We feel that existential loneliness. Observing the devastating loss of diverse plants and animal species around the world, Wilson has suggested that this, we feel this existential loneliness as we are separated from our close kin and feel the great family tree being felled branch by branch. Even worse is the knowledge that humans have been responsible for this shattering destruction of millions of years of evolutionary creativity. Numerous scholars and thinkers have described the ecological crisis as a spiritual crisis, noting that ecological destruction brings with it the loss of many important spiritual values, such as those of beauty, place, home, solace, and companionship, among many others. Gus Beth, the former dean of the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies and the founder of the National Resource Defense Council, realized at the end of his career that environmentalists have been too focused on science and policy. He wrote in his book, America the Possible, a Manifesto for a New Economy, quote, I can see clearly now that we environmentalists have been too wonkish and too focused on technical fixes. We have not developed the capacity to speak in a language that aims straight at the American heart, resonates with both core moral values and common aspirations, and projects a positive vision. Public discourse on the environment has been dominated by lawyers, scientists, and economics. Now we need to hear more from the preachers, the poets, the psychologists, and the philosophers. He wrote that in 2012. So spiritual ecology speaks directly to this call. 
If this new human-dominated age presents a wound to the human spirit, how might religions and spiritualities engage with this challenge? How can religions and spiritualities offer a language that reaches the heart and addresses core moral values, providing a positive view to shift worldviews and practices to become more earth-embracing? This is our challenge. This talk offers five ways that ecological spirituality and spiritual ecology are essential responses to climate disruption and mass extinction in the 21st century. And before I explain those five ways, maybe I should say what I mean by spiritual. Spiritual is one of those protean terms that gets used in so many different ways, in different contexts, depending on the religious or historical context. We incorporate it into our daily lexicon in the secular context. We say I'm spiritual but not religious, right? Maybe I have a meditative practice or contemplative practice, but I'm uh, disengaged with organized religious traditions. Um, the psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor Viktor Frankl said that the, the will to meaning, the search for meaning in our lives is a spiritual activity. The concept of spirituality arose as a distinct concept after the Catholic-Protestant split. To identify the Catholic direct communication between humans and the divine, but also to sort of paint Catholics as superstitious. And then recently, spirituality has been a study of, um, or the study of spirituality in many professions has taken off. And spirituality has, in the professional world has been seen as a way for people to bring their whole selves to work, um, to show up fully. And there have been a number of studies that have tried to identify what is meant by spirituality in the professions. So to take just one example, the field of occupational therapy encompasses spirituality. And some researchers set out to define what that meant in occupational therapy. They found 92 different definitions in the published work of occupational therapy and spirituality. Um, they group these into some categories related to God, spirit, transcendence, existence, meaning, and life force. But even there, you know, there was no um, distinct definition. So I'm going to leave spirituality fairly undefined here, recognizing that it has all these different meanings in different contexts, and it means different things to different people. Um, I, I think that spirituality is one of those things that really cannot be boxed in. And so I just want to recognize it as a broad set of attitudes, inclinations, and practices related to both interior, deeply felt connection with something larger or beyond the human realm, possibly imminent, possibly transcendent, just kind of leave it really open. So whatever spirituality is for you, you can apply that definition in this, in this talk. So I said I have um, five ways that spiritual, spiritual ecology and ecological spirituality are necessary responses um, to climate disruption and mass extinction. And I've um, created a little acronym so you can remember them and so I can remember them. It's a dream because we need to dream of a world that we want to live in. And the kind of dream that you can bring into reality, not the you know, sleepy kind of dream that just vanishes. So dream. So first, deep evolutionary inheritance. Second, resilience and resistance, which I'm going to talk about at the very end of the talk. Third, embodied spirituality. Fourth, astonishment and awe and wonder. And fifth, motivation. So that's D-R-E-A-M. And I'll talk about them roughly in order, except for resilience, which I'm going to save to the end, so that we can end on a high note. OK. Deep evolutionary spirituality. Um, so eco-spirituality may be part of our genetic inheritance. 
Darwinian evolution has shown that humans are part of the evolutionary continuum, genetically similar to primates, mammals, vertebrates, and indeed all of life. Humans arose in the context of wild nature, evolving alongside millions of other species. Human life is inherently relational. Expressions of spirituality may arise from the evolutionary processes of the natural world. Natural selection favors cooperation in organisms from bacteria to primates. We don't hear about this so much. We hear about competition, but the scientific studies show cooperation um, is the way to go. Ernst Haeckel, who was a German naturalist and a contemporary of Charles Darwin and a big proponent of Darwinian thought, I'm going to come back to him in a little bit, he argued that the cooperation of many microorganisms of the same species led to the evolution of multicellular organisms. This is the colonial theory of multicellularity. And this was 1859 or so. Uh, this hypothesis has been occur uh, observed to occur independently in a number of different microorganisms. In larger animals, particularly mammals and birds, Empathy, the ability to perceive and care about the emotional states of others, has been argued to be a driver for what psychologists call pro-social behaviors, those behaviors that support social bonds and strengthen community groups. Ethologists who study animal behaviors, like Franz DeWall, Jane Goodall, and Mark Beckoff, have observed nurturance, maternal care, reciprocity, fairness, and justice behaviors usually associated with humans, among social mammals and some birds. These behaviors look a lot like human spiritual attitudes and practices, some of them, and others certainly pave the way for spiritual attitudes and practices. Ethologists have even observed what appear to be attitudes of wonder and awe, dances of joy, and rituals among primates, other primates than humans. A feeling of wonder has been theorized to give rise to a sense of spirituality or connectedness to the larger whole. I want to emphasize here, I'm not arguing for only a biological or a material basis for spirituality, but rather I'm suggesting that spiritual intuitions and experiences extend beyond the human family. Humans have evolved as part of wild nature and we're embedded in wild nature. Ancient cave paintings thought to be for ritual or shamanic use, such as those in Le Coe, France, which are 17,000 years old, are of large wild animals, showing the deeply intertwined connection of spirituality with the matrix of nature. Without diverse and flourishing abundance of other forms of life, humans would have nothing to eat, no clean water, nothing to wear, no medicine, shelter, or building materials. Living nature, birds, insects, and flowering plants ignites our aesthetic appreciation. Imagination, cognition, and creativity take flight in symbolism metaphors grounded in the natural world. Countless metaphors reflect connections to other forms of life. Quick as a fox, social butterfly, wise old owl, beet red, carrot top. From our very origins, humans are innately, genetically, and inescapably grounded in nature. Of course, indigenous, native, and aboriginal groups, as well as African traditional religions, have long identified imminent and animate power in plants, animals, and features of the landscape. In some cultures, spiritual believings are believed to inhabit the landscape. These ecosystem deities can help us understand the deep entanglements of social and ecological justice in life ways and daily practices, extending outward to global processes. In expressing the insight that the lands, water, and air are not ours, but long predate us and have their own ends and interests and require appropriate recognition via prayers and propitiations, Practitioners of indigenous religions recognize their kin and the interdependencies that birth their future. In African traditional religions, the metaphysical and the mundane are not in opposition, but are interwoven through daily life, meaning that matters of kinship, 
livelihood, ethnicity, political economy, and religion regularly intersect with nature. Having evolved surrounded by diverse flora and fauna, our intuitive understanding of relation ex that extends beyond humans to include an innate desire to affiliate with life and lifelike beings, which E.O. Wilson and the late Yale socioecologist Stephen R. Kellert called biophilia. According to the biophilia theory, humans have a weak genetic tendency to desire affiliations with other forms of life. The scientists posited that this tendency is inherent that is woven into our genes through millennia of evolution, but also weak in that it requires education and nurturance to be displayed to its full extent. In cross-cultural studies, Kellert found the nine values of biophilia that he identified pleasant, present in cultures around the world with different cultures emphasizing different values. Kellert also emphasized the necessity of childhood experience with non-human nature as essential to cultivating this value of biophilia. Interactions with diverse species and natural environments is necessary for children to develop their full physical, cognitive, and emotional capabilities, which is why I wanted to take my daughter to those tide pools. In natural ecosystems, children learn to solve complex problems, test their physical capacity, observe changing seasons, monitor their surroundings, and test hypotheses so that they can grow into fully flourishing humans. Secondly, ecological spirituality is an embodied spirituality. A spirituality of ecological systems values human bodies and the body of earth and sees bodies not as material impediments to be transcended on the path to greater spiritual realization, but as part and parcel on the path of spiritual realization. Ecofeminists such as Carol Chris, Starhawk, Sally McFaig, and Charlene Spretnak have been particularly insistent that body denying dualism is inherently oppressive and denigrating to both women and nature. The porosity of the ecofeminist body allows in sensations, feelings, and emotions from the surroundings, as well as being empathically in tune with family members, children, friends, and others in professional and social settings. This porous body does not seek to encompass or engulf the larger landscape of organisms, but instead recognizes the interpenetrating and interdependent nature of all existence. As water and food are taken in and incorporated into the body, children grow within the womb and chemicals of modern industrial production can be absorbed through the skin and membranes. No individual is separate in any way from the action that affects the larger world at scales from the local to global. An example of um, this, this connection between spirituality um, and embodied nature was the work of Wangari Maathai, who founded the Greenbelt Movement in Kenya, which eventually planted 51 million trees in Kenya and expanded to 170 countries. New, the movement began as a way to meet basic livelihood needs, but Matai soon saw that the valuable work of planting trees and developing skills through this process was meeting important spiritual needs for connection and communion. The third um, aspect of spiritual ecology and ecological spirituality I want to talk about is astonishment at being here, at being on this beautiful planet, and the awe and wonder and inspiration that it engenders. Throughout history, seekers and mystics have found their inspiration in wild nature. Extreme environments allow for isolation and separation from mundane concerns that may prompt reflection and yield spiritual insight. Many progenitors of the environmental movement of the 19th and 20th centuries took inspiration from nature, like Ralph Waldo Emerson, who encouraged people to contemplate nature as a mean of, means of understanding their current situation. Henry David Thoreau, who found solace in quiet contemplation of nature at Walden Pond. 
Rudolf Steiner, who understood that consciousness and nature would necessarily evolve together and founded Anthroposophy, a spiritual scientific discipline with applications in many fields, including agriculture, philosophy, education, and the arts. And of course, the founder of the Sierra Club here in California, John Muir, who rambled across the Sierra Nevada mountains and beyond, capturing moments of ecstasy and inspiration in nature in his writings and urging government officials to protect large swaths of wilderness. Aldo Leopold, uh, one of the founders of conservation biology, developed the land ethic that considers human responsibilities to the land and to the myriad organisms dwelling within it. He saw the development of this land ethic as a process of spiritual and ecological um, and ethical evolution. Through this evolutionary process, he thought that humans would expand their sensitivity to appreciate the fierce green fire of wolf's eyes and to be able to think like a mountain. He wrote, a thing is right when it tends to preserve the integrity, stability, and beauty of the biotic community. It is wrong when it tends otherwise. Contemporary science is revealing the biochemical markers that indicate spending time in nature, especially in forests, not only feels good, but is good for us. As indicators of stress responses are reduced, people feel more relaxed and they can more easily access creativity. They are more present for intuition or spiritual insight. The biophysical benefits of being in nature have been researched in the West since at least the 1980s. And again, indigenous and native and Aboriginal people have known this forever, but the scientific establishment has known it since the 1980s. When the psychologist Roger Ulrich discovered that hospital patients who had views of nature scenes healed more quickly. Research has shown that observing or, or walking in a forest relaxes the mind, promoting a soft focus. A forest is immensely complex with huge variations of color, texture, reflectivity, structure, and scale that keep the eye moving and the brain softly engaged to interpret the range of sensory inputs. In addition to visual input, a forest provides a range of sounds from quiet to loud, as well as colors and textures. A forest provides a feast for the senses that promotes alert, alert awareness. In Japan, the practice of forest bathing, or Shinrin-yoku, based on ancient Buddhist and Shinto practices, is standard preventative measure, medicine to help uh, relax and reduce stress. Leisurely forest walks have been observed to reduce cortisol, which is a stress hormone, as well as lower the heart rate and blood pressure. The forests also emit aromatic volatile substances, that nice smell of evergreens and other trees that reduce stress. These, these chemicals reduce stress and lower blood pressure, and they seem to enhance immune response. So go to Tilden, it's good for you. Mystics and religious teachers, including Jesus, Muhammad, uh, Moses, the historical Buddha, and Thomas Merton, have retreated to the wilderness to contemplate and seek enlightenment away from the distractions of human society and worldly cares. Practitioners of Tibetan Buddhism undertake extended meditation retreats lasting three years, three months, three days in remote caves and hermitages in the Himalayan mountains. Jesus's 40 days in the desert, Moses's ascent of Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, and the Buddha's realization of enlightenment under the Bodhi tree all suggest that inspiration and insight of these spiritual avatars was received in nature. Sublime landscapes provide inspiration to people throughout history. Mountain peaks are often revered as the center of the world or the axis mundi around which all human events revolve. The cosmic mountain like Kailash in Tibet or Machapuchari in Nepal or Kilimanjaro represents a break in the plane of ordinary space and provides an opening that allows passage from one realm to another, serving as a connection between heaven and earth. Contemporary research in positive psychology suggests that experiences of awe, 
the feeling of wonder that occurs in the presence of something vast, magnificent, and powerful, as may occur in contemplating spectacular terrain, contribute to pro-social behaviors and to emotional and physical well-being. Feelings of awe may also contribute to religious and spiritual inclinations. Thus, immersing oneself in awe-inspiring natural landscapes can generate both well-being and spiritual attitudes, along with increased connection to others through generous and altruistic behaviors. In this way, the natural environment is both a cause of and a beneficiary of positive human interactions with it. The fourth um, letter in dream, or the fifth letter in dream, the fourth thing I'm going to talk about is motivation. The wonder, love, compassion, and wisdom at the heart of spirituality provides motivation and tools for, um, for understanding our place in the natural world and creating a flourishing future. Researchers, scientists, and activists have been motivated by spiritual values to care for Earth. In my own research in the Himalayan nation of Bhutan, I've observed how contemporary environmental challenges have been addressed by deploying spiritual values from Buddhism. Bhutan has become a leader in alternative international development strategies by calling on its most ancient traditions, its 1,200-year history of Buddhism, as well as the indigenous spiritual beliefs that exist before and alongside Buddhism. The Bhutanese Buddhist worldview posits pervasive sentience throughout the natural world, which contributes to human and ecological well-being and influences environmental practices at a range of scales, including environmental policy. This comprehensive Bhutanese worldview does not impose contradictions between environment and economy, between religion and daily life, between the well-being of ecosystems and the well-being of humans, or between mind and body. To take just one example, um, a, a project to reduce waste in southeastern Bhutan is led by a revered Buddhist Rinpoche, a reincarnated Lama. And he sought to both reduce waste in this district as well as increasing um, self-sufficiency and, and preserving basic livelihoods. So he employed traditional Buddhist uh, Bhutanese values, uh, building on cultural traditions of thrift, creativity, and artisanry, artisanal, there we go, <laughs> um, as well as Buddhist values, um, to create a project in which people created crafts um, that reused uh, materials. His project restores value to materials which have been lost and reincorporates waste material into the cycle of life. In ecological systems, matter and energy continually flow through the system, and matter continuously provides nutrients to ecological processes. In this Rinpoche's project, he reincorporated waste material into this ecological flow and helped villagers re-identify the value inherent in household materials that were perceived as waste and restored to the circulation of matter. Earlier, I said I'd return to the German naturalist Ernst Haeckel, um, who lived in the end of the, um, he lived from 1834 to 1919. He was perhaps the original spiritual but not religious ecologist, and indeed he, he coined the term ecology. So we are indebted to him for our study. He critiqued both Abrahamic and Asian religions for their belief in anthropomorphic gods, yet he still considered himself to be a religious person in the vein of Spinoza and Goethe. His close observation of the natural world led him to a naturalistic scientific worldview of wonder in which the monotheistic God and the reductive instrumental model of science was replaced with an imminent nature. Heckel was deeply influenced by Charwin, Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species, which, as you'll recall from the beginning of the talk, was published in 1859. Heckel began re reading it the following year in German, and soon, as a 29-year-old scientist, 
was lecturing on Darwin's theory of evolution. Heckel sought to navigate a third way between materialism and dualism, I'm sorry, materialism and idealism without resorting to dualism. Here we can perhaps see the influence of his travels in Ceylon, which is now Sri Lanka, and his observations of Hinduism and Buddhism. So, um, yes, so we are indebted today to Heckel for his term ecology. Um, in 1866, he saw the planet as a unified whole with the diversity of organisms living together in harmony and order, as well as conflict and competition. As we appreciate this contribution of a new word for understanding the world as a household, grounded in Heckel's patient and close attention and wonder at the natural world, we must also bear in mind that Heckel was a product of his time, viewing Darwin's thought as supporting racism and anti-Semitism. Europeans for Heckel were at the top of the evolutionary tree. He was also, like many scientists of his era, a proponent of eugenics and thought they would help perfect the human race. Heckel died in 1919, but his support for eugenics was, of course, catastrophic in 20th century Europe, as well as in sterilization projects and other projects of human perfection in the US. So, I want to you know, recognize that this word ecology comes with this baggage of racism and, and white supremacy. And that is one of the challenges that spiritual ecology certainly must overcome. Um, and many of the founders of ecology and environmentalism in the late 19th and early 20th century uh, tied it to this idea of improving the human race and eugenics. Uh, so this... Um, uh, there's this hazard in the, these ideas from the beginning that must be addressed in the 21st century. And finally, the R from the word dream, the resilience and resistance. Spirituality offers resilience, resources, and resistance for facing the sad, bad news. One of the greatest challenges in studying and learning about climate change and ecological degradation is to avoid emotional shutdown while remaining open enough to take in the big picture of global change. We need to be able to stay open and attentive, even in the face of discomfort and existentially challenging material, to be able to receive and fully incorporate the facts. Environmental studies professors often de describe their courses as gloom and doom 101. And this causes shutdown among our students and ourselves. Recent neuroscience provides evidence for the efficacy and importance of contemplative practices as supportive to navigating these challenging emotions. The, pra uh, the practice of contemplation can prepare the mind for a shift in consciousness and even shift the way reality is viewed. Uh, practices of meditation and um, compassion meditation in particular change the brain, leading to stable mental states and towards equanimity. Brain scans of advanced meditators show less reactivity when they view disturbing images. What this suggests is that practicing contemplative exercises, meditation, uh, weaving them into daily life, may create less reactivity to challenging situations. Lowered reactivity generally leads to more considered and thoughtful decision-making. Changing the mind's pattern changes the body, including physical changes in the brain and lasting traits that become persistent features. For example, the mental maps that people have of themselves and their place in the world become more refined through practices of contemplation, such as meditation. As people become more attuned with themselves through meditation practice, they strengthen their attunement with their five senses, as well as their awareness of their interior of the body, the mental activity, and the relational connection to larger wholes. Greater attunement with oneself um, decreases the 
notion of the atomistic individual and the separateness, the feeling of separateness starts to fall away, leading to a greater realization of the interconnected whole. For human beings, social animals who crave connection and dissolution of isolative boundaries of the self, the perception of wholeness and interconnection leads to greater happiness and well-being. A consequence of this greater sense of connection is that people also increase their empathy. They began to create you maps through which they understand others. And through this greater sensitivity to connection, meditators create we maps that incorporate others and reflect participation in the larger family of life. So spiritual, spirituality and contemplation can play an important role in resisting the demands of the industrial growth society that threatens to overwhelm the planet. How do we face the Anthropocene? We need to feel, we need to feel and sense our emotions and grief in our body. The Buddhist teacher and systems theorist, Joanna Macy, leads the work that reconnects it focuses on spiritual practices that build connections between individuals and ecosystems. Other environmentalists incorporate contemplative spiritual practices such as meditation, art practice, and movement practice into environmental work to provide additional means of support and discernment. Environmentalists can draw on spiritual traditions and practices for sustaining and nourishing themselves in the midst of their work and for recognizing and working through big emotions. Spiritual responses encompass not only positive emotions like love, belonging, affection, and compassion, but also fear, grief, loss, mourning, despondency, and despair. Spirituality can provide avenues for working through ecological grief and climate anxiety. Another example of the role of spirituality in addressing the current time is the creation of the Order of the Sacred Earth a project of Matthew Fox, Skylar Wilson, and Jennifer Listig. They have a new book called The Order of the Sacred Earth. And their idea is that followers of this order, participants in this order, would take one sacred vow. I promise to be the best lover and defender of the earth that I can be. And they're promoting this inclusive new spiritual order and encouraging people to take this vow. The role of spirituality as resistance was evident in the nearly year-long um, resistance to the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline that Energy Transfer Partners sought to build in North Dakota in 2016. Members of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe and their allies argued for months that the oil pipeline would desecrate sacred places and burial sites within and around the Lakota Sioux Reservation. <laughs> Prayer sustained the water protectors and their allies, who included religious leaders from diverse traditions around the United States and from as far away as Scandinavia. The water protectors cited their spiritual connection to earth and the sacredness of the four elements, earth, air, fire, and water, as essential aspects of their activism. While representing diverse traditions, practices, backgrounds, and teachings, the activists asserted that there was no separation between their spirituality and the surrounding natural environment. At least 10,000 supporters visited the water protectors camp, including members of nearly 300 different indigenous groups. And you know what happened. Des despite sustained protests, the pipeline became operational in 2017. The Dakota Access Pipeline has lived up to the protesters' fears. It has already experienced 12 spills of over 6,000 gallons of highly toxic Bakken crude oil. Standing Rock Sioux tribal members continue to work with the National, Defense, National Resource Defense Council to seek legal remedies and halt the destruction on their land. More recently, we see movements like Extinction Rebellion and the Sunrise Movement calling on the moral authority and spiritual values of young people to address climate instability and mass extinction. Earth-based activism grounded in spiritual values shows the power of spiritual ecology to contribute to a change in values and behaviors that humans need to make to sustain life on this planet. 
As humanity faces the challenges of climate change, mass extinction, ocean acidification, um, and other ecological disruption, spiritual ecology will be increasingly important for both appreciating the inviolable role of human connection to living systems and for identifying the kinds of values and practices that can sustain life into the future. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fort. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts. Visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs.